You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 today. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 27 through 30 together. As you're turning there, uh, by way of uh, introduction, uh, as I sat down to uh, write uh, this message this week, and as I studied, uh, honestly, my heart was uh, really heavy. Um, I just, I, I could feel like the anger and, uh, and the frustration even, um, some of the fear, maybe even confusion, you could say. Um, and honestly, as I began to write, even after my studying um, long seasons in prayer uh, this week, I really wasn't quite sure where to begin. Um, but I do know that I, I had to start, right? Because uh, the preaching of the gospel can't stop. Uh, but at the same time, the preaching of the gospel has to kind of flow out of um, the deep recesses of my own heart and, and what's kind of rumbling around inside of it, and then it's got to make its way out into the recesses, hallways, closet spaces of your heart um, by the power of the Spirit of the living God, right? A little uh, backstory to the reason that my heart was where it was as I wrote is, um, like many of you, been glued to my news feeds nearly five months now really been glued to those news feeds in a way that uh, I think is different than previous months and previous years something seems to have come absolutely unhinged in our beloved American culture over the last five months you take a journey with me for a minute just survey last five months. You begin back with the experience of, uh, I would say, the confusion of a botched up uh, presidential impeachment attempt. It really, uh, I think, emanated out of uh, the heart of a polarized society. A polarized society that I believe has prostituted the concept of freedom has turned that good thing into uh, something that I would call entitlement with cheap lipstick on. Uh, we've experienced also um, just the panic, right? The, the worldwide panic of a viral pandemic it's led to the near complete shutdown of the world. Estimated Again, these are just numbers that could change, but estimated 363,000 deaths worldwide in five months. If those numbers are anywhere close to right, that's 72,000 estimated deaths per month. That's just the time that I wrote this on Friday. Uh, we'll also experience the... Uh, quote-unquote, peaceful protest 
at the Michigan State Capitol. I, I would assume most of us saw that on our news feeds. Yet the Michigan State Capitol was by a, a heavily armed mob of people who wanted to confront the stay-at-home orders that were given by their elected government officials. And here's the reason they were doing it. They walked into that state building heavily armed because they perceived the orders to stay at home to be a massive infringement on their constitutional right. We've also uh, experienced more recently <clears throat> the horror, once again, the systemic racial injustice that has led to the public executions of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Ahmaud Arbery in southern Georgia, and then Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky. And then, coming out of that, we're experiencing now on the news, last I heard, over 40 cities, the public protest from those murders all across our nation. And, and that, that the result of that has been more loss of life, buildings being burned to the ground, businesses being looted in response to those murders. Last I knew, the one in Omaha has um, made its way to within three blocks of our oldest daughter's home. I find much of evangelical America more upset about the looting than they are the death of people. I see more posts in our social media feeds about that than I do the loss of three black people's lives. To me, it seems like the heart of our nation has come almost completely unhinged. Now, you think about that, and now you add to those experiences just over the last five months, the normal day-in, day-out struggle against our own sin, right? Problems in our families, physical health concerns, financial pressures, emotional health, relational conflict, out-of-control addictions, suicide, the physical loss of loved ones. Add all this together, whether you're just totally cognizant of these things happening or you hide from those things, and they don't seem to affect you. Either way, these things are happening, right? And these do affect our hearts in a certain way. Add all this together, I think what you have is a recipe for disaster when it comes to the condition of our hearts. So my concern this morning as, uh, as I preach this text is with the hearts of anybody who gets to hear the message, right? That's my concern. It's with our hearts. What will the history books say in the next decade about the condition of our hearts during this time? That's the, there's one single question all the way through this message today. That's the question. What are the history books going to say about us? If the writers of the next generation of history books were to take a peek into the daily habits of my life, what would those historians say about my manner of life, my lifestyle in the midst of all of this confusion, all of this fear, all of this panic? What would those historians conclude is the most important thing to me right now? 
what would they conclude if they were able to collect all of my social media posts, all of my text messages, my, my emails, my daily schedule, my financial expenditures, my relational interactions? What will history say about my manner of life, our manner of life in the American church during this intensely difficult season? Philippians 1, 27-30, the Apostle Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is a timely timely section of Scripture in this moment, is it not? The Apostle Paul here is concerned in this passage, I think, with what the history books are going to show in regards to the Philippian church's manner of life. Got to remember, the Philippian church was birthed out of a culture that was hostile to the Gospel. Acts chapter 16 paints this picture of a church that came into being as the gospel was being proclaimed in a hostile culture. You may turn to Acts 16. I'm going to do a quick survey of it. Follow along with me. See if I got it right. The Apostle Paul honestly wasn't even thinking about going to Philippi. He's going to go somewhere else until the Holy Spirit is like, whoa boy, stop there. This is where you're headed. It starts there. The first person to hear the message of the gospel in Philippi to become part of the Philippian church along with her entire household was a presumably successful and wealthy Asian woman. Next person to hear the message of the gospel become part of the Philippian church was a demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl. And this miraculous event happens not because the Apostle Paul utilized his Roman citizenship to lobby against the immorality of the public policy and the culture they lived in, but this happened because he preached the gospel. And in a display of power, a power of the Spirit's presence in the name of Jesus Christ, what happens? He cast the demons out of this girl and she tasted true freedom for the very first time. How wonderful it would be if we in the American church walked in this kind of spiritual power today. And I believe that it's because we don't walk in this kind of spiritual power that we give our attention to other things instead. It's hard to pursue the Spirit and ask for His infilling and His strength and His courage to walk up to someone, preach the Gospel, and see demons cast out. Much easier to do other things 
Next thing you see happening, Act 16, <laughs> that the ex-slave girl's owners now drag Paul and Silas into the city streets before the city officials. They falsely accuse them of doing something illegal. Why? Because their economic profits were being undermined by the fact that the girl they once exploited and took advantage of was now useless to them. Why? Because she'd been set free by the gospel. The result of this public hearing is that Paul and Silas are beaten and locked up in jail for no good legal reason. So what do Paul and Silas do? What, what would you be tempted to do? Their response to this kind of suffering was to pray and to sing songs of praise. That's what they did. And that was followed by a miraculous earthquake that then opens the cell doors. It releases the prisoners from their shackles. And so the head jailer fears for his life. And then in this really amazing twist of events, he hears Paul and Silas doing what? Preaching the gospel. And so this man now becomes the third member of the Philippian church along with his entire household. And then the last thing you see in this short survey of Acts 16, the last thing you see in the birth of the Philippian church is the Apostle Paul and Silas being released from jail with an official apology after using their Roman citizenship to bring public shame upon those city officials for their unjust treatment. Now, jump out of Acts 16, come back to Philippians 1. Now the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. What's the purpose of the letter? One of the biggest highlights in the letter is joy. One commentator said it's overflowing with Paul's jailhouse joy. It's a great comment. But the purpose of the letter is not joy. Paul didn't write to let people know of how happy he was. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church roughly 12 years later from a prison cell. He's awaiting his own possible public execution in Rome. He's concerned that the Philippian church is going to become known for their self-righteousness, their pride, their complaining, their arguing, their disagreements, and their division. That's in Philippians chapter 2 and chapter 4. It's the main thrust of the letter. It's his purpose. It's why he's writing. And he's convinced. Convinced that the heart is the heart of the issues. That the only vaccination for the sin infection that he sees is the centrality of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. That's the vaccine that's needed. Paul believes that the Philippian church must put on the mind of Christ in chapter 2. That they must focus on working out their own salvation in Christ in chapter 2. That they must stand firm in the joy of Christ in chapter 4. So you have Paul's purpose and you have his solution. Big overriding theme, right? Now that you know that about the letter, now we're set to say, what's he saying in these verses now, right? Now that we have context built. But before he even addresses all of those things, what he's going to do is he's going to build a category 
for what it means to possess a manner of life, a lifestyle that is worthy of Christ. See, Paul is not concerned at all with these people in Philippi having a manner of life that is worthy of a Roman citizen. He doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about their Philippian citizenship. He, He never talks about that. Paul's concern is that the history books will paint them as people who lived their lives in a manner that was consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ as citizens of heaven. Of the natural history of Acts 16 is what came first was Paul's citizenship in heaven. What came last was his citizenship in Rome. So the first thing we see is simply that my manner of life must be consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. When he says this, in the literal Greek, he's literally saying, let your manner of life as citizens of heaven be worthy of the gospel. Now, here's the thing. I am as patriotic as they come. An American flag in my garage. Thankful that I have the freedom to carry. But my citizenship is in heaven before it's in America. Will the history books write my story as one that was defined by the Constitution or defined by the Bible? Which will they say? Are my conversations permeated with gospel centrality or American policy? Which one is it? Now listen, I do believe that the Constitution was framed around some really great, true biblical principles. But, I've never believed, never believed, and I don't think I ever will believe, and I don't think you guys do either, never believed that you can legislate morality. can't. Laws and policies are important, and they serve a specific purpose. They define right from wrong. They restrain evil and they convict evildoers. This was the reason for the law in the Old Testament. The only thing that's going to set somebody free is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that's going to set men and women free from the tyranny and the slavery of sin under the law. That's the book of Galatians in a nutshell. And so for me, as a gospel-freed man, I have to labor hard, where possible, to bring the gospel to bear upon the morals and the ethics of the society that I currently live in as I look forward to the perfection of heaven. But, this is an intensely fine line for us to walk, okay? If I'm not careful, I will begin to speak the language of an American better than the language of a gospel-freed man. This is why I'm so strongly devoted to asking other believers, what has Jesus been saying to you this week? It's why I am devoted to that one single question. Why? Why am I devoted to that question? Why do I harp on that question all the time? Why won't I let that question go? 
I am devoted to this question. What is Jesus saying to you this week for this reason? It's a relationally motivated question. That's why. It's not a politically or policy motivated question. It's a relationally motivated question. And it gets after the heart of my relationship and your relationship with Jesus. I don't want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk to Jesus. And I have no right to talk about Jesus if I'm not talking to Jesus. Because I'm trying to give something that I don't have. And that's my concern for us. I believe that what the world needs most right now, and and at all times, especially right now, the world needs Christians. Not Christians. They, They don't need Christians who can speak a better political language or better policy language. What what the world needs right now are Christians who can speak a better gospel language that flows out of a vibrant relationship with Jesus. Do you know Him is the question. Do you know Him? Do you spend time with Him? My manner of life consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ is the question. Second thing that we see in the text, verse 27, is that my manner of life must be consistent with standing firm in unity. Alright? Must be consistent with standing firm in unity. The Apostle Paul says it this way, whether I come and see you or am absent, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Alright, in other words, He wants to see or he wants to hear that the believers in Philippi possess a manner of life that is consistently marked or characterized by what? Standing firm in unity. Oh, here's the thing. Unity does not mean uniformity. Okay? Doesn't mean we walk the same, talk the same, dress the same. Some of us do. Unity does not mean uniformity, but it does mean a singularity of vision. Single-mindedness instead of double-mindedness that James talks about. Disunity is the result of competing visions that rest on competing values. When you have disunity, it's because the vision is different reason the visions are different is because you actually value something differently. Now I believe that the ideal of unity, the ideal of unity for us in America has is, is always been hard to hold on to. Watching a miniseries right now that I absolutely love called Grant on the History Channel about Ulysses S. Grant, his leadership during the Civil War. Uh, But the list could go on and on about the disunity in our country, even though we have an ideal for unity. I go off on lots of tangents about that and identify that it's there, right? Uh, The vision that we have for freedom with underlying subsets of competing values, that that's always going to produce multiple interpretations of that vision 
which is then oftentimes going to lead to destructiveness, such as what we see right now and have often seen in our history. It's a broken system. It's my point. It's a broken system because you have sinners involved. Don't hear me say throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you heard that, you're not listening. Just calling attention to what's broken. If you don't call attention to what's broken, why do you even need the good news? Now this applies uh, heavily to our spiritual lives. Philippian church is going to need to hold on to a singular vision of Christ crucified, risen and returning in the midst of an ever-changing and eroding culture. So, you and I, we got to ask ourselves, is my manner of life consistent with standing firm on a unified vision of who Christ is and what He wants to accomplish in my life and in this world? Do I talk to Him? Do I know Him? Do I have a relationship with Him? Is He speaking to me? Am I hearing from Him? Most important right now. More important than anything else we could be doing. Third thing we see, verse 27 once again. My manner of life must be consistent with fighting for the faith. Paul tells the Philippians that he wants them to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. (laughs) I have a problem. Pause with me for a second. iPad is so hot it uh, says that it cannot... (laughs) I have no idea how to fix that. Well, if you would pause with me for a minute, I think I can grab my computer. Can you grab my computer, Lewis? Sun is beating right down on it. And uh, this temperature, iPad needs to cool down before you can use it. <laughs> Trade you. Thank you, sir. I know that Not even. Now, you know it'd be great is if I actually kept my screen on my computer clean, so I could see what I was doing. <laughs> All right, get to the right file. Somebody tell me what point I was on. Okay, finding my uh, Philippians folder. There's Philippians. Come on. Philippians chapter 1, subfolder. <laughs> Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to 30, subfolder. I'm almost there. <laughs> would be bad. Would be bad. I think I almost like this better. I can, I don't know, I can see it a little bit better. All right. Sorry, folks. Number three, right? My manner of life must be consistent with fighting for the faith. Verse 27. Here's what Paul tells the Philippians. Tells them that he wants them to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, here's the picture that I get when I read this. It's the picture of a team that is fighting together, uh, not fighting against each other. They're fighting together to reach a unified goal. And in this case, what's the goal? Uh, The goal is 
the faith of the gospel. Okay? The, the Philippians are in grave danger, I think. They're in grave danger of becoming so infected with sin that they might be rendered powerless to either contend or fight for the faith of the gospel. That's the problem. Now, you might wonder how I can say that, right? You might ask, how can I make that bold of an assertion? How can I assert that the Philippians are in grave danger of becoming so infected with sin that they would be rendered powerless to contend or fight for the faith of the gospel? How do I know that the Philippian church is in grave danger of being completely impotent in their culture? How do I know that? Well, have you ever witnessed the effects of self-centeredness on a family unit? Have you ever witnessed a football team completely unable to reach its desired goal because of pride infecting that team? How often have we seen terrible loss in families because of all the complaining and the arguing that goes on behind each other's backs? Now listen, turn on the news right now, and what is it that is being preached at you and I? Complain, complain, complain about everything that all of our government officials are doing wrong because we have the freedom of speech to do so. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying don't use your freedom of speech. I'm saying use it in a way that actually is influenced by the gospel. Can't we see the destructiveness of unresolved disagreements or division in our country as we speak right now. And if you don't think that this has infected us as Christians in the church, I think you're naive. Philippians 2 and 4 addresses these issues directly. We're almost there. We start to jump into this next week. The basic result of all the things that I just listed is that instead of fighting for the same goal, we begin to fight each other instead. And I believe this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is attempting to address. We need to be asking where we are aware of our manner of life, our lifestyle being inconsistent with fighting for the faith of the gospel. And instead of fighting for that, we fight for something else. And we dress it up in religious language. Where is there an evidence in my life of self-centeredness or pride or complaining or arguing or unresolved disagreements or division? Where do we see this in our midst, in our church family? We have a responsibility to one another this way. These kinds of things are antithetical to the manner of the life that fights for the faith of the gospel. Now the fourth thing we see is that my manner of life is to be consistent with not being intimidated by my enemies. Move into verse 28. A manner of life must be consistent with not being intimidated by my enemies. Paul says, do not be frightened. I might underscore that word and remember it. Preached on fear last week. I'm going to come back to it. Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. See, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, of your salvation, and that from God. 
Now, as you look at this verse and you look at these words, the first matter of importance in verse 28 is identifying who our enemies or opponents, as Paul puts it, really are. You've got to identify that first. Okay? For most of us, that might feel really easy. Take a journey with me for a minute. Because if we set our sights on the wrong enemy, then what's going to happen? Never going to walk in unity. Never going to fight for the same gospel outcomes either. We're fighting the wrong enemy. And what does Ephesians 6 teach us about enemies? Ephesians 6 is very clear that our enemies are not flesh and blood. I'll say what I've said many times. Those of you who are Republican are not my enemies. Those of you who are Democrats are not my enemies either. Not. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is spiritual in nature. And we have a very hard time keeping this straight. Why? I think because we live in a physical realm. We are physical, right? We certainly, listen, (coughs) I'm not going to downplay the fact (coughs) that in our physical realm, we face physical opponents. Paul did. All the believers did throughout scriptures. But the key to fighting well is recognizing that if we have enemies in the physical realm, then those enemies are controlled by a spiritual enemy. Which is why Paul says that their opponents, <coughs> that for their opponents, what is happening is a sign of their destruction and our salvation. He brings it back to something spiritual. Follow me? If we are fighting for the faith of the gospel, if that's really what we're fighting for, is to see people won by the gospel, to become saved, to hear that message, then we're going to fight for them, not against them, even as we stand against them. You follow? We fight for them, not against them, even though we stand against them. Uh, That's probably hard to understand. (laughs) I will admit it's complex. I don't think anybody ever said this is going to be easy. Really, though, this kind of thinking, it flows out of what Eric said earlier. Um, It flows out of a picture of Christ and his sacrificial love, his compassion for his enemies. The problem is that oftentimes we think, man, I got saved because I prayed that prayer. I got got saved because, man, God saw something good inside of me. We wouldn't typically admit that. But but we, we live in that like a reward system, right? I mean, the reward system has been around since the garden. So we're infected with that. So it's good for us to be really careful because what I'm talking about when it comes to not fighting against, but fighting for while standing against, it flows out of this picture of Christ, his sacrificial love, his compassion for his enemies, us, to the extent that he would do what? Die horribly on a cross in their place, even as he speaks words of truth to them. Why? So that they might become saved. So we must lovingly 
oppose our enemies and not be intimidated by them. Now, the last part to recognize in verse 28 is that we need to pay attention to anyone or anything that causes us to be frightened. We'll come back to that word. The literal word here in the Greek for frightened is panicked. Let's let that sink in for a minute. Panicked. Now, when you think panicked, I would think it's probably easy, easier for you to think about what you watched on the news last night in terms of those people over there who are panicking and causing mass destruction. I don't want you to think about it in terms of the others out there. I want you to think about it in terms of you. It causes you to panic. This word panic, it carries the image of a, <clears throat> a stampeding herd of horses. That's the idea behind this Greek word. And there's many things in this life at this moment for you and I to be panicked by. And what happens with panic is that it causes us to leap into action, right? Out of our own human strength. And what happens is we can be driven to react just like Peter when he instinctively panicked and reacted to Jesus being arrested. What did he do? He unleashed his sword in his own physical strength and he cut off the ear of their physical enemy because that made sense. In our day and age, for us Americans, it'd be pulling out my concealed carry gun and taking someone out, right? Remember that reactions speak louder than actions. At the end of the day, this is for me, you may disagree with me, and that's fine. We can still disagree on this and walk in unity, but you might find in this an invitation. At the end of the day, I personally counted a privilege and I counted a joy to be confined to the physical realm of non-essential by the powers that be. Why do I say this? I, I say this because it's a sign of their destruction and my salvation, which does what? It releases me. It releases me to live in true freedom a true kind of gospel freedom that allows me to seek the good of my enemies, not their destruction. They're already headed for destruction. What they need is Christians who have compassion. To this light and momentary affliction, my opinion, small in comparison to the suffering of the cross of Christ, the the cross that I and you as disciples are called to pick up and carry. I must constantly remind myself that I am absolutely entitled to nothing except a sinner's death and the eternal consequences of that death. But by the grace of God, right? Through the power of His Spirit, I have been enabled to trust in Jesus through faith. And therefore what? I have the gift of salvation that I did nothing to earn and can never lose. So, do not be intimidated, friends. Don't be intimidated. Don't be frightened. Don't be panicked by what you are experiencing in this world right now. Instead, be slow to speak. Be slow to post things. Be slow to anger. Be quick to listen. 
you might be, listen, right now, you might be engaged in a fight with a physical enemy who might be your spiritual brother or sister soon. Why? Because of your ability to love him or her sacrificially. Honestly, every one of us sitting here today, we're enemies of the cross, therefore enemies of each other at one point. That physical enemy that you can't get out of your mind might be your spiritual brother or sister tomorrow. The key to your ability to loving this person sacrificially, once again, lies in the depth of your relationship with Jesus who gave his life for you while you were his enemy. So, is your manner of life consistent with not being intimidated by your enemies? Number five out of verse 29. My manner of life must be consistent with the gifts, plural, of believing and suffering. Now, it's easier for us to receive the gift of believing than it is to receive the gift of suffering, right? Uh, we do not usually think of those two things in the same category as being gifts. <coughs> when Paul says, it has been granted to you, that word granted is the word for graced, gifted. It's been graced to you. It's been gifted to you. That for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So the bottom line here is that suffering for Christ is a gift, something that's been granted to us. Why? Because that suffering deepens the meaning of the gift of believing in Christ. Believing in Christ is just a big foo-foo fluff ball of some little cute prayer you prayed at camp if it has nothing to do with suffering. Okay? And it creates weak Christians. You see, to believe in Christ is to suffer for Christ. And to suffer for Christ is to believe in Christ. The fellowship of Christ's suffering, what that does is it moves us as believers beyond the role of recipient or beneficiary of Christ's death into a different role at the same time, simultaneously. This other role of being a sharer in Christ's suffering. When Paul says, I bear the marks of Christ in my body, that ought to be, ought to be the testimony of every believer. The fellowship of Christ's suffering, that is the proof that God is at work in my life, and it acts like a badge of my true citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what an encouraging truth to remember. It's why you got to ask yourself, why I got to ask myself, is my manner of life consistent with the gifts, plural, of believing and suffering. Number six. Lastly, out of verse 30, my manner of life must be consistent with being engaged in gospel conflict. Now Paul says that he wants the believers in Philippi, and I think by default you and I, to be engaged in the same kind of conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, what is that? What is that same gospel conflict that Paul had that he wants us to be engaged in? Well, in short, it's the conflict that we outlined earlier from chapter 16 when the Philippian church was planted, right? Paul's gospel preaching, listen, his gospel preaching did not create conflict 
because he was out there lobbying to change public policy. Though, though, it's a fine application, it's not what Paul was doing. Paul's gospel preaching, it created conflict. Why? Because it transformed the lives of new believers. So let me ask you, in your spiritual lineage, who are the new believers that you have attached to you because of your gospel preaching? This isn't just the expectation of a preacher in a pulpit. This is the expectation of every believer at the church in Philippi. So there ought to be a lineage behind each of us because of our gospel preaching. New believers who are following Jesus. But that's hard work. It's much harder than public policy. Public policy is hard. Everybody agree with that, right? That's hard. Still a fine application. His gospel preaching created conflict because it transformed the lives of new believers. And that lifestyle change, that change in those people's lives that Paul preached to, shared the gospel with, shared his life with, it was in direct opposition to the values of the Philippian culture. The Philippian culture valued some kind of prostituted version of freedom. It did. It's called Hellenism. We could talk about that for quite a while. The weird version of freedom. We have a similar piece of that in America today. Not necessarily because of the Christian church. As I've already said, in Philippi, and I believe here too, this this idea of freedom that they had there and that we oftentimes have here. Entitlement dressed up in cheap lipstick. The question for us is, are we going to engage the same kind of gospel conflict as we see Paul engaging here in the Scriptures, or Are we going to dress up our conflict with religious language? Is my manner of life consistent with being engaged in gospel conflict? That's the question, right? So I want to conclude this. In conclusion, we always ask why this matters. We always ask what difference it's going to make. We always ask what's going to be different when we pull our heads and our hearts out of this text this morning as we leave this place of gathering. And at the end of the day, I, I feel a deep burden. I said this last week, I still feel it. I feel a deep burden for the church at this point in history, during these tumultuous times. What are the history books going to say about us? What manner of life are we going to be known for? Will our manner of life be known for the gospel, known for unity, known for fighting for the faith, known for not being intimidated by our enemies, known for joy in the gifts of believing and suffering, known for being engaged in gospel conflict, or Will our manner of life be known for self-centeredness, pride, complaining, arguing, disagreements, and divisions like Paul addresses here in chapter 2 and chapter 4? Got to ask, I believe, got to ask the Spirit of the Lord to search us, to see if there's any impurity in us, to cleanse us once again, to set our feet on the right path as citizens of heaven. My closing statement here comes from another author who said, Christ won it, our freedom, our true spiritual freedom. He wore it, our purity. He kept it, our salvation. And He gave it, our citizenship, to you and I. Christ won it. Christ wore it. Christ kept it. Christ gave this 
salvation citizenship to you and to me. The question is, is, will our manner of life be worthy of this salvation citizenship? Will the history books describe you and I as people whose lifestyles reflected the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will we be known for a unified vision of Jesus? Will we go down in history as people who fought for the faith of the gospel? Will we be known as people who loved our enemies well? Will we be described as people who joyfully endured suffering and hardship as we believed upon the name of Jesus? Will we be known for our Christ-like engagement of gospel conflict? Christ won our freedom at the cross. He wore our purity at the cross. He kept our salvation at the cross. And He gave us our heavenly citizenship at the cross. And the only question left for us is, will my manner of life reflect this cross in the history books? Let me pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask God that You would come now and apply it to our hearts as we survey the work of Jesus at the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross, the sovereignty of You as our Father at the cross, the power of the Spirit at the cross. Pray, Father, that You would draw us to the foot of that bloody cross into the doorway of that empty tomb as we hold on to the hope of our citizenship in heaven. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.